Hello, Heal community. For the first time in nearly a year, I'm opening my practice back up to the general public. I'm actively looking for 10 new qualified clients committed to reversing their illness or health concerns and powerfully taking on their journey to heal. If you're interested in finding out more, go to my website and schedule a free 25-minute phone call. We will discuss what you're dealing with and be sure we are the best fit for each other. Remember, I specifically have expertise in autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, mold illnesses, hormones, and insomnia, but can treat much more. Looking forward to connecting with you. Welcome to HEAL. On today's episode, Pastor Ken Williams and I have a deeply connected and profoundly parallel conversation about medicine, spirituality, and the role of God and faith in the healing path to wholehearted living. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Welcome to another episode of Heal. I have Ken Williams, who is one of my most favoritest people on the planet, and you have been in my life for quite a long time. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to figure out how old you were when- 10. our, our lives started to intersect. Well, that's, that's 30 years. I know uh, 31. Yeah. In fact, no, let's count. <laughs> I know. yeah, I met your daughter, Erin in the fifth grade when I first transitioned to public school uh-huh. and we became friends within the first week of my starting at Indian landing in Penfield. And then soon thereafter, wanted to hang out and have slumber parties and spend time. And then I got to know you and Brenda and you and Brenda got to know my parents. And so you were the parent of one of my childhood best friends. And then as we journey on down our path, you were also the pastor of the American Baptist church that I lovingly joined as a healthy rebellion from my hippie Buddhist parents. (laughs) (laughs) That was part of my like differentiating myself as an individual. And I distinctly remember because, you know, my parents are super involved in my life. And if I join a club, my mom ends up running it pretty much all of my childhood. And so when I started going to Baptist temple and participating in the youth choir and part of the youth group, I distinctly remember pointing to her and saying, you can't come. This is mine. I'm doing this on my own. Right. Right, and then, right, you know, right. later, years later, guess what? She ends up the co-youth group director at the church. But that was actually when I was pretty close to not participating anymore as I'd gone to the end of high school and college. Right, but, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and we can also say that your mother became an integral part of Brenda's life. And that's a, that's a crucial part of my story. And yeah. your father and I have, have linked in trying to sort out what it means to be a man in, in today's world. So that we both love poetry. We, we do share a lot of readings. We, we have breakfast from time to time. And every time we get together, it is um, a delight. So yes, our family are, yeah. are spiritually linked. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. And more to come on that as we continue to talk. And I want to highlight the reason why I asked you to be on Heal is this is a conversation I've wanted to embark into. And I frequently have been known to take on conversations that I'm not an expert in. (laughs) And so, you know, not even to put the term expert for you, but you have 45 years in Christian ministry 
You have served in both, you know, pastoral ministry and denominational executive, you said, including the American Baptist Churches of Rochester in the Genesee region. You have made it your life's work to be a beacon and conduit of religion and spirituality and faith and God in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say and that's- you and I were looking at these conversations about, you know, I have a particular commitment in my self-expression through being a doctor and medicine that I've found that when I help support people on their healing journey, I find that it's inextricably linked with a spiritual journey. But I come from this medical physiology standpoint. So I want to get it closer to straight from the horse's mouth of the God and faith and spiritual component on healing. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't think of a better person to have that conversation with than you can. Good. Thank you. I'm delighted. Happy to do it. Let's discover something together. Excellent. I love (laughs) that. So I want to start with, you know, it's, it's almost cliche in our culture to be assumed like, well, of course, spirituality and faith have a power to heal. But yet I also think that in our very dominant, I use quotations on purpose, scientifically based medical community, that's been really set aside or kind of put as an afterthought. And, mm-hmm. and I, I've embarked on blending in at least a sense of purpose or people's self-expression or some sort of being on a spiritual path as part, like, like I said, inextricably linked from the healing journey. And I feel like you and I are kind of on two sides of the same one-way mirror or something like that. So what would be your, just to dive right in, like what role does spirituality and faith have in the healing process? Well, thank you for using the word spirituality, because I wanted to draw a distinction between religion and spirituality. You can't have a religious life without spirituality. However, you can have a spiritual life without religion. And I I think that we are in a culture that is throwing everything up for grabs. I don't know that there's been a time in my conscious life wherein religion has been diminished, politicized, are otherwise relegated to the margin so that there is a remaking going on. I think that there's a a regenerative energy that is slowly being released. It happens in the Christian tradition. It has happened three other times, and they're 500 years apart. And uh, the last time it happened was the uh, Protestant Reformation. That was 500 years ago. So every, every 500 years, It seems that we remake ourselves trying to figure out how to be present to the culture we're in. Now, back to the spirit. I think it goes back to to the philosophical sentence that you are familiar with, I'm sure, Sarah. The question is, are we having, are we spiritual beings having a human experience or human beings having a spiritual experience? And uh, I, I tend to believe that we are spiritual beings to begin with, and that we learn our way. And religion helps some of us, but not all of us. But all of us 
have a spirit. All of us, in my view of the world and humanity, have a soul. And that soul is, is kind of the meeting point of who we are, who we have been, who we have, who we are becoming. And to, to speak of healing is to speak of ha having faith that our healing helpers actually can help. So you as a doctor have within you a bank of knowledge and you are able to win trust because you actually practice what you preach. I'd like to think that the same is true for me that I believe I've got something of value. And I believe I know a little bit more now than I knew when I first met you. And that that growing wisdom creates a, a level of trust that I think is crucial to any kind of healing. We've had traditions in, in so many pockets of human life that have raised up people, doctors, ministers, rabbis, imams, shamans, people who have a link to what has healed in the past, what is being discovered, and what perhaps can be in the future. And I, I believe soul work is healing work. Well, I knew I was going to say this a lot on this podcast, which is me too, <laughs> you know, and there's a couple things you said in that, that I want to touch on. And like, you know, it, it was like this layered process that I'm going to actually at the end, which is a conversation we've had around naturopathic medicine frequently. When I get together with other naturopaths about the philosophy of our medicine and at the core of naturopathic philosophy is a Latin term called vis medicatrix nocturae, which translates into the healing power of nature. And at sort of the root of the philosophy of my medicine is that there is an inherent intrinsic force that exists in all living things. And we call it the vital force. And the stronger the vital force, the more capacity a person would have to deal with major circumstances physically or emotionally as well. And overcome those circumstances based on that vital force. And one of the primary philosophies that the underpinnings is why some people struggle to heal physically and other ones don't is because of that reduction in vital force. And then you can get into whole kinds of conversations of what reduces vital force and where does that come from? But when you go read like Dr. Linlar and some of our original philosophers from the profession, as we define it, which is sometime mm -hmm. in the last 250 years, you get all of these intertwining conversations between a spiritual life and energetic life and a physical life. And that was more an acceptable cultural conversation than it is today, where we've really relegated science and medicine into this physical container. And then we have spirituality and energetics and faith, but you said some key things like the word trust. And there's a form of medicine called narrative medicine that I didn't know this existed. My mother actually discovered it and sent me information <laughs> and I read it and went, oh my God, this is what I do for a living. And I didn't even know that the field existed. And right. there's an actual degree program at Columbia University in narrative medicine. And the basic principle is any physician, surgeon to internist to health, you know, family medicine, 
any physician can practice narrative medicine and narrative medicine is a way of asking questions and listening to your patient's response from a commitment of healing and resolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they have documented research that's shown that surgeons who incorporate listening to the stories of the patient have statistically better outcomes for the same surgeries than those who don't have a relationship with their patient. Mm -hmm. Even though the mechanics should be the same. Right, right. Well, remember that there is in both the art of medicine and the practice of ministry, a, a, a belief in the ineffable. That is, there has to be something more than linear thought that, that we are we are actually that's a, that's one of the problems of our culture that's one of the reasons we've got a sick culture is we're stuck in linear thought and we are we always tend to say either or it's either this or it's that it's good or it's bad it's healthy or it's sick and i could also um, say uh, with with some confidence that there is also a literature that says that persons who have a fairly well-defined de sense of spiritual self and also are religious tend to participate more effectively in their own healing. Yep. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a sense of trust that I am being helped and I have helpers I cannot see. If, if that is true, then it begs the question, why aren't more people flocking to find out how do I become more spiritually aware? I, and again, I'm being cautious. I, I consider myself a, an evangelical Christian. I, I want people to know that I am devoted to this man, Jesus, because I think Jesus, in my experience, and I have to be sure you hear that, and all of those who will listen to this podcast, in my experience, is, is the example of what it means to meet the divine and the human in a real living place. But I also believe that there are traditions that we, we need to become attentive to. I think the greatest work we can do now is to help people feel strength, feel that they've got energy feel as if they are engaged. When uh, at another point, when our lives were more intensely intersected, Sarah, you might remember that I gave you three categories. And those categories are maturity, mutuality, and a sense of mission. That is that if you are growing in those three areas, becoming mature, engaging with other people, developing circles of intimacy within mutuality, then you, and you have a strong sense of purpose in your life, then you're going to have a sense of your whole self. And when you have a sense of your whole self, you also are contributing to your own healing. Mm -hmm. So I, I am, am delighted to hear about this narrative understanding of medicine, because it means that when we talk about those three categories, maturity, uh, mutuality, and mission, we're really talking about telling our story. So that, and, and you, you talked about the doctor listening. 
and and you know we are so accustomed to cognitive medicine where it's okay what are the symptoms got the symptoms okay well it's this or that maybe it's that but most likely it's this that and 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 that's it you 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 wind up with an answer but you didn't have a relationship it's when you develop that i'm listening to you tell me your story then hey we've got something going yeah. uh, i'm really fortunate that my traditional physician is also a a a practitioner of buddhism so he teaches mindfulness to first year medical students as a stress management technique but he listens he listens carefully and he listens effectively and you would think it takes more time in in an exam but it does not we take as much time as anybody else but yeah. i leave there always feeling as if i've had a profitable conversation as well as i've gotten help for whatever ails me yeah and that piece is something that i've been identifying more and more inside of one of the things that i can promise and deliver upon in my practice as a physician is the building of a relationship that i cultivate with my clients goes really deep and it doesn't have to always be the way that i do it but that's my model and i tend to be one of the people who can witness what my clients are going through in a way that even is difficult because their spouses are in the middle of the circumstances right there with them and their children are dealing with the impacts of it as well and you know they're not going to share certain things with their coworkers and so i get to be an intimate part of their life, but yet also unique because I am not their spouse. I'm not their boss. I'm not their sister. I'm not their kid. And it creates this trust and this safety and this place to be in communication about things. Exactly. And that's something that I discovered through my own journey with transformational education, which I used the power of coaching just to make a difference in my own life. And then that started to bridge a gap where I saw in that respect of bringing listening to my relationship with my clients. And there's something in transformational education that we do a lot of work on, which is how to clear your listening, how to listen from nothing versus we tend to listen for the end of their sentence. So we can say the thing we're thinking of, or we <laughs> listen to the, like as a doctor, we got trained to listen to the mechanics of what are they saying to be able to pull out a diagnosis as fast as possible. Right. And in the world of speed that I was literally trained in doing that, but I would miss things. And I personally, when I take notes with my clients, I got taught how to do medical abbreviations and how to like condense their, their, but I don't, I actually take dictation. I write down exactly what my clients say because the way they say it matters. The oh, what absolutely. words they chose actually gives me clues into what they're really dealing with. Like it's actually written there on the page and I get more diagnostic information by not editing anything that they say and like the way they explain certain things, I can see kind of behind the veil. Right, right. Well, and Sarah, I, I can't, you, you promised me that this would be a give and take and you trigger an awful lot in me. But my wife, Peg and I, Peg is also a, an ordained minister. And we frequently talk about our counseling experience because ministers do a lot of, of spiritual counseling, day-to-day -day counseling. We're generous counselors, but we have to sit and listen. If you have a 50-minute counseling session, 
you sit and you listen to uh, a lot of of what I would call banking language. That is, I'm I'm banking on you to understand what I'm saying, even if I'm not saying it clearly. But the real substance comes out in the last 10 minutes of the session. And it, you can always count on the last 10 minutes of where the meat is. Why? Well, the reason is you spend the first part of your session winning trust or mm -hmm. renewing trust. And that, 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 that's where if there is value in, in talk therapy, it is in that last 10 minutes when trust has been renewed and some vulnerability can be expressed. You use the word safety. There are not a lot of safe professions any longer, and you and I represent two of them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It was really great because one of the things I wrote down in my notes for preparing for the session is prayer, placebo, and miracles. <laughs> because it's like that that's something that's not so present for me i tend to be more in the realm of i consider myself having a deeply rich spiritual life but not a particularly religious life and and so prayer is a word that i notice i've had to rebuild trust with quite frankly and yeah. create a relationship to which i think is true for a lot of people kind of go through different versions of either being spoon-fed or force-fed a religious context in their childhood, and they may or may not have had the opportunity to develop their own spiritual relationship in that process. And so a lot of times some things like prayer get tossed out. But there's literature in medical research that shows people with a powerful relationship to prayer, like you, you talk to, and spirituality, but prayer in particular, they have better outcomes in right. their you know physical healing journey. But then there's this word we deal with a lot in, in alternative medicine, which is, oh, well, homeopathy only worked because it's placebo or this drug is no better than placebo or this. And, it, and we have a tendency to diminish that. But the actual statistics show placebo alone accounts for 30 to 35 percent of healing. And to me, if we say we're discrediting that, we're throwing a third of opportunity off the freaking game chart. Sure. And and I do think there's actually there are shown research that even points to where placebo exceeds the effectiveness of other physical substances beyond that 33%. And I recently had, and this is a, an episode that came out when, when this episode goes live, this one will have come out a couple weeks ago. Dr. Larry Farwell is a neuro, a PhD in neuroscience, and he spent his entire career studying uh, consciousness and he has scientific evidence for the proof of miracles and how through intentionality, thought, prayer, intentions of a placebo, we actually can shift the probability ratios of a less likely outcome becomes more likely mm -hmm. through the power of consciousness and the power of mind. And so I personally do see a link here between prayer, placebo, and miracles. And I very carefully say placebo in the sense of the effectiveness that of can having, be created. Right, right, right. Having having good, a good effect. I, I, I want to I want to speak to prayer then because uh, we tend because we we have mindsets that are fixed based on our own experience positive or negative with a religious life and we tend to bind prayer to words 
and that somehow if we say it right, that it will have some effect on the divine. I'd like to shift that and reverse it, actually, that prayer is does not have to contain words. Prayer is our self-awareness focused. So when when I, the best time I pray, frankly, is when I might be driving to a, an appointment to, to see a widow and to talk about grief. I'm going to be thinking, I need to have some guidance about how to be attentive so that she can be focused. Attentive, focused. I would be, use those two words, not streaming sentences, but the, I would just be conscious of those words. And that's, Sarah, a release of energy. And so I can associate prayer with energy. Now, placebo, what is hope? Hmm. Hope, hope is a condition of anticipation of something that does not exist. It hasn't happened yet. It is out there. Is that a placebo? Well, by your definition, it surely is. And, and what is a miracle? A miracle is something that has been beyond our consciousness that suddenly is there. It, it, it can be a physical manifestation of something we thought was impossible, but more often than not, it's our perception that we suddenly become awake to something that we thought was not going to be present in our lives at all or that an outcome that we had thrown off as being completely something we, 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 we can't even entertain suddenly becomes real. What happened? Well, I do, I, I'm gonna say both things. I think God, however you define God, can lead us to perceive something that we, we helped create because we trust in the divine. But also, I think when we become what I'm, and Brene Brown has, has popularized this word, but when we become wholehearted, that is, we've really been working on ourselves and we use prayer to, to listen to ourselves, when we become free of shame, when we become more trusting that uh, we can handle what's in front of us, then we can perceive that which we thought was impossible. I, I, I have a Picasso right in front of me here. It's a print of, of the man of La Mancha. And to, to dream the impossible dream, every time I look at it, I start humming that, that, that song. And um, I say, that's, that's what I aspire to help people do, is to live energetic lives that are full of anticipation of what will be. I love it. I love it. And, and one of my favorite definitions of miracle that has bent my brain, but keeps me in tune is a miracle is an incidence or occurrence. The acknowledgement of which requires an alteration in my worldview. Right. Right. If I don't alter my worldview, I never see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. But the altering of my view allows me to see it. And then there's this, well, what was the miracle? It could be the altering of the view. 
oh, that yes. ability to alter and expand our view of what we think is possible, what we think is capable, where who we are for ourselves, who others are for us, how the world is. And some theme that's come through this conversation that you've brought up is one that I pin a lot inside of my healing for myself and with others is self-awareness and self-realization. And that's been generally my experience. And I don't have an extensive practice of people dealing with terminal illnesses. Most of my experience is people with chronic illnesses that more or less are not going to kill them anytime soon, but the general trajectory is, is that they're just going to slowly deteriorate. And I am at work on reversing that process. Mm -hmm. That being said, my experience in that population is the really greatest access I have to having them reverse that chronic illness is increased awareness. And the awareness might come in the form of taking lipoic acid and having that alter a symptom that they've now discovered is alterable. And that awareness now generates new actions, but at the root of it, it's awareness, 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 awareness. And even down to the level, there's a book that was really influential for me in my twenties conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And there's a quote in that book about if we were truly aligned to who we really are and crystal clear who we really are from the perspective of God, as this author created it, which is beings of love and light, right. we couldn't smoke a cigarette or drink alcohol or consume anything poisonous or toxic to ourselves. We would just literally like, like, it's not, I, and I say this to my clients to make a point that, you know, most of us really, I don't know of anybody that's been difficult for them to quit their motor oil habit. We, we don't have a tendency to have to talk ourselves into not drinking motor oil, but there are other substances that we've got to go through quite great lengths to, you know, quit soda or quit alcohol or things along those lines. And it seems kind of ridiculous at a certain level, but the point that was made in the book is that the more clear you are about who you really are as a spiritual and loving and light being, there will be actions that simply fall away because they're no longer consistent. Yeah, and I that's believe. been my experience in healing and working with my clients. And what I find is the difference for me between healing and being a technician of herbal medicine and nutrition, because I can be a technician of herbal medicine and nutrition and prescribe the right diet and give them specific herbs that will have a biochemical impact on the body. And there are people that have done all of that and not necessarily healed. Right. 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 And there's like a get, but they can also take those actions with a particular looking an awareness. What is this diet? Like I always say to my clients, everything that we're doing is an experiment. I'm not prescribing you this diet because it's what you're supposed to eat for the rest of your life. I'm prescribing you this diet so we can do an experiment for 30 days. And I want you to report back to me what changed, what didn't change and what it was like for you. And then based on those observations, we'll come up with the next plan. And if you come back and say, Sarah, I can eat all the dairy in the world and it doesn't bother me. Great. Knock yourself out. Yeah. But if you come back to me and go, oh God, my headaches went away. My joint pain went away. All these things shifted. I had no idea I could feel this good. That's actually frequently, but it's the awareness that people now have. That's what keeps them moving forward. Not the prescription of the diet per se. But but you've made your client a partner in healing, not you, the expert, 
and the client being the receiver of your expertise, you're basically saying, as you have pointed out, this is an experiment that we're working on together and using my, my three-pronged three M's, uh, I heard there, you created a mutuality that allows for a greater maturity and energizes a life purpose that you give. I mean, it, it just, it all yeah. flows. It, it is a, it is a flow. It, the problem comes, and I suspect you, you have had this experience more than once, is that people get stuck. And, and once they get stuck, they stop trusting themselves. And the next step is to stop trusting the helper. Mm-hmm. And then they stop trusting the medicine. And when, when that stuckness takes over, everything goes unhealthy. And I, I think at least culturally, that's where the society is. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and get a little more specific into what you have experienced for yourself about the relationship between faith and healing. And in particular, one of the things we talked about is the work that you've, you know, you often are the person, the counselor and the support person to someone who's recently lost a loved one or is going through some very difficult periods. But you had mentioned something to me in our preparation for this, that you could speak on the Kubler-Ross process of grief and you could counsel people, but until you walked a particular journey yourself, there's now a whole new relationship, particularly around grief. Would you share more about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm classically trained in seminary and Kubler-Ross really came into vogue in the mid-70s when I was a seminarian. And you know, we, the, the, the stages were, were, were taught, again, as linear. You, you begin with, with denial, move to anger, to depression, I'm sorry, to bargaining, to depression, and then finally to acceptance. When my wife, Brenda, died in 2009, I realized that I was going through several of those categorized states of being at the same time. Sometimes I was going back to denial. Sometimes I was busily bargaining, but then I would go back to anger. And I, I, was, I was not able to get all the way to acceptance until I had danced my way along this continuum. So yes, I, I believe that there is a, a relevance of the five categories in, in grief, but to, to think of them as sequential is, I think, to make them a cognitive structure, but they're not in the pit of your stomach visceral because you have to live through and the, the absolute pain. And Sarah, I think you do know that that was absolutely the most painful experience of, of my life. Because to, to make sure that the listeners understand, my, my, my wife, Brenda, uh, walked for about four and a half years with a Herthel cell carcinoma, which is a fairly rare cancer of the thyroid. Most thyroid cancers 
are treatable and and many of them are curable. But her particular cancer was considered an orphan cancer. Very, very few papers are written about it because it's so rare. And we knew that it was going to foreshorten her life. We, we watched her getting sick and I was becoming aware of moving from curative medicine to medicine as management, because that's, that's the sequence that actually, actually occurs. And we kind of knew that, that down the road, death was waiting. We weren't prepared for sudden death. And her death was, was sudden. Her aorta uh, burst, probably either because of a tumor or because of the racking cough that was uh, created by a radiation pneumonite, but her death was was unexpected, sudden. It was disruptive. I've I've called it an amputation. But I I have learned to ask this question of people I work with. I had to ask it of me. What is it that I am being taught as someone? who was very fortunate to have found a partner at a very early age with whom we had actual, deep, and abiding covenant love. To have that love taken away, how do I recover life with some vitality? And I, I, I discovered that my, my faith had actually prepared me for that because in the New Testament, in the, the letters to John, not the Gospel of John, but the letters to John, there is, there is a reference to God being love. God is love. God is the substance of who we are. And if, if that's true, and I claim it is truth, then the love that I've had for Brenda did not die. In fact, it continues on. It is always there. And so I have come to recognize that acceptance is realizing that while grief is, is, speaks to an absence, bereavement speaks to a presence. So I've, I've taken those two and I've, I've I've, I've, I've assigned them different roles in my walk. That is, I know what it feels to have the cry of absence. I also know what it feels like to have the, the comfort of knowing that there is a kind of immortality that is, that is beyond our knowing, but not beyond our experience. And in my experience, that love has grown. And how do you explain that? Well, it, it has to do with my feeling a trust in the divine. So acceptance ultimately is claiming that the, the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 13, um, love never dies, was actually speaking of the wholehearted love. What, what are the things that, are, that abide? Faith, hope, and love. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Well, we love to, to quote those things at weddings, but uh -huh. Lord, I have lived into it. Yeah. 
Yeah, beautifully said. And there's not really anything to add to that. And one of the things I, you had given me, I don't know, what do you, what do you call your packet writing that you created it's, for? It's, it's an essay that, yeah. um, that, I, that I wrote essentially for two reasons. One, one was to tell the story so that my children, Adam and Aaron and their children would have a, a framework for understanding Brenda's walk. So the first part of that essay is basically a, a chronology of her illness and what, what, what transpired. The second part is basically a critique of, of the way we as a culture treat death. We, we tend to consider that our job for the, for the, the grieving person is to make them feel bad. And I can tell you from that, that, that experience that really jolted me into a new awareness is that I didn't need comfort. I needed acknowledgement. And I, 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 I feel sometimes that we have a kind of code language that we insert when we don't know what words to use when someone is, is, uh, is grieving. And they're there. She's in a better place. Yeah. But she's not here. So I, I need some acknowledgement. The, 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 the best example of what I'm talking about is Ken Cawthon, who was my theology professor in seminary way back um, 40 plus years ago. And I became his pastor when he was in his 80s. And when he learned the day of Brenda's death, he came to my house. He walked in with tears in his eyes. He embraced me and pulled me to the couch and sat me down, put his arm around me, and just started to cry. And his tears said, I miss her too. That's acknowledgement. That was comfort. I think my appeal in that essay is please be aware that sometimes you substitute your own comfort for the comfort of the person that is really grieving. Yeah. And you want them to stop weeping or you want them to stop feeling badly or you want them to, to cease feeling abandoned. No, I think you need to let them feel what they feel and, and acknowledge that and, and, and honor your, your relationship with them in a way that, that is very positive, affirming, and giving the hope that we're going to walk this path with you rather than, I'd like you to stop crying now. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and that's something that at all levels of healing and trauma comes up frequently for people of the need from our own, I'll speak for myself, but like it's, it's where I'm uncomfortable or I'm not, I haven't gone there myself. And, and then to be in the presence of someone else going there brings up all kinds of stuff, you know, and our tendency to want to put that down, make it small, suppress it versus to be able to bear witness to that extent of emotion and experience of pain and suffering. And there's lots of things we could tie into of one of the teachers I've been starting to study his work is Gaber Mate. 
who's one of the world leading experts on trauma. And he comes originally from a psychology background, but, you know, and he writes extensively about how human beings build their entire lives as a contortion to prevent themselves from touching the core wounds that we have had just by being human and being raised the way we are. They're just, it's, it happens with everyone. And in Buddhism, we talk about it as samsara and the inevitable suffering of humanity that, that is just built in the way that we live. But yet our current culture goes to great lengths to hide away, suppress, numb, subdue, and really like contort ourselves into great weird positions <laughs> and balancing acts that take a lot of energy than to just let it all fall and hit the ground and be willing to weep and be literally dropped to our knees right. by a those kinds of experiences. Yeah, I, I think, Sarah, that a prime reason that from the earliest human history that there are God reference is because of our mortality. We are religious because we are anxious to have a source to help us determine what is life? Why is there death? What is the purpose of it all? What, is, what does it mean to redeem a death? How can suffer be turned into something that has value? All of these are questions that religions answer in a variety of ways. And I think that that's, that is a tribute, ultimately, on the positive side, to our ability to imagine in a, in a meaningful context. I think it becomes a different uh, narrative when I start anticipating my own non-being. What does that mean to be a non-being? Well, it means my body will one of these days give out. But it doesn't mean that my spirit goes away. It means that my soul has a source and that I will return to that source. Much is made about descriptions of heaven, near-death experiences, those, those sorts of things. And I, don't, I do not ever want to be heard as discounting another person's experience. But in the end, the ability to describe what happens next is a, a, a gift that some may be given, but it's not given to many. The rest have to trust that there is life beyond. And part of my calling is to assist in those large questions. And they don't have ready answers. You have to learn into them. You, Sarah, early on, you said, here is my understanding of my call. And it's, it's to be a healing presence. Well, mine comes, I have a, I have a scripture that I long ago claimed as my own. It is from Isaiah uh, chapter 50 and verse 4. And it says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher so that I may sustain with a word the one that is weary. 
morning by morning, God wakens, wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. In other words, I'm learning so that I can have something of value to pass on in this walk of life that is both gift and terror. And I think that my job is to take the terror away. I grew up, if I can be offer a bit of testimony, I grew up in a, in a tradition that in which there was a lot of fear language. And basically, we're scaring people into faith in order to avoid damnation. Well, and, and, and of course, that those traditions tend to be very heavily sin-focused, and that's I had to grow out of it. I have a story. You told your story about you know, declaring your own uh, little bit of rebellion against your, your, your parents to, to, to go your own way, to have your own, own thing. In, in the literature that I follow, that's called owned faith, coming in not, not, not faith that I have adopted from my parents, but faith that I declare as mine. And I have grown to a place now where I really do appreciate the variety of ways in which these large questions about life, what its meaning is, how to live in it with some vitality and, and find meaning in large and small things, all of these are embedded in this ability to comprehend the intentionality of God. So how do you define God? Well, I'm going back to my, my definition of God as love. And that love is, has so many different definitions from, from eros to philos to, to the, 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 the notion of that we are all embedded in the soul of God all the time. The good and the bad and the ugly, the beautiful. So never discount the experience of another person. That's been my philosophy. And that's been the way in which I've been able to participate, I think, in, in the healing of souls so that the soul can be uh, incorporated into the body-mind-spirit typology. Well, thank you, Ken, so much for sharing some of your knowledge gained and wisdom and learning that you've been able to acquire these many years of service and then offering it up in this conversation for our audience and listeners of Heal. This is a really special episode and thank you for still being a major part of my life. And I have had the privilege to learn much from you in the spiritual realms and of the, the walk of the soul. And so I appreciate your partnership and I'm super grateful for your participation here on Heal. Wow. It's been fun. Oh yes, yeah, Sarah. And I'm so yeah. proud of you. I just think that you are one of those folks that I look at and I say, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Well, until we get to do this again, thank you so much. Blessings. Thank you to today's guest, Reverend Ken Williams, for his grace and wisdom of the ages. 
For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickbor, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.